Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, there should be a Bible in the chair in front of you, the pocket below. Um, You're turning to the first book of the Bible. Very easy to find. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Now, have you ever made a big mess of your life? I'm not saying have you ever gotten into a mess. Uh, There's circumstances and events that happen that are outside of our control. No, I'm asking the question, have you ever made a sequence of choices that have caused a big mess to occur in your life? And some of you are smiling and nodding right now. Maybe a little too uh, excitedly for that matter. Well, this morning, as we're going to read in the book of Genesis, the father of faith is also a real mess maker, Abram. We're going to continue to look at this theme, unconventional. Uh, We talked about unconventional in two different ways. Number one, God's plans, purposes, and ways from the human perspective appear to be unconventional. They're outside of the box. A lot of times we're scratching our head and saying, if I was God, I wouldn't have done it that way. Which also means then that the person of faith who is walking in steps with God's plans, purposes, and ways is going to look unconventional to the onlooking world. But what happens when you and I choose to instead live a little more conventionally? Well, as we're going to see in our story this morning, When we start operating under the conventional human wisdom, human schemes, human patterns outside of the guidance of God, we make a series of conventional messes. Let me give you a little bit of background before we get into the story this morning. Uh, You might remember that Abram had made that trek into the promised land from Canaan. He'd started off in Ur of the Chaldeans. Some of you were like, why didn't Abram just go all the way over to the land of Canaan? You notice that big obstacle in the middle of the map there. Uh, That's called a desert. And, uh, you know, um, I don't think he wanted to go through that. So he actually had followed the Fertile Crescent made his way to Haran, and then had a little 15-year delay there in Haran uh, while he was sidetracked with his father. And then he made his way down into the land of Canaan. He began at Shechem. The text tells us that he built an altar at the Oak of Morah. Now, you might not know this, and I didn't say this last week, but that Oak of Morah means something like the Tree of Teaching. Uh, The Hebrew expression suggests that this was somewhat of a local shrine or, or a gathering place. And so when Abram had put down that altar, he was boldly declaring to the people of the land uh, that God is God, that this is his territory. When the text says that Abram called upon the name of the Lord, you could translate that something like he preached. Bold living, the unconventional life. He continues to make his way southward. He goes up in elevation to a place that will have some significance later in Israel's history to a place called Jerusalem. And there he builds an altar, declares his faith to inhabitants. He makes his way southward more to the Negev region, which means dry or parched. And that's where our story picks up. Verse 10. 
Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, let's stop right there for a moment. If you are a good Bible student, you should be saying to yourself, wait a minute. That doesn't sound right. I don't think that God meant for Abraham to go into Egypt at any point when he said, I'm sending you to a place of promise and I want to bless you in that place of promise. In fact, as you read the narrative sequence, it almost feels like Abram came down from Haran after his 15-year delay, comes into Canaan to Shechem, down to the place of Jerusalem, down to the Negev, and then just swoops right out of the promised land. Quick, abrupt. What's going on here? Well, I don't think Abram ever intended to leave the promised land, but I also don't think he ever thought that there would be famine in the promised land. Abram had lived all of his life in a region known as the Fertile Crescent. He had probably never experienced anything like famine. Uh, the Hebrew word for famine is hunger, and there's many different uh, reasons that famine occurs. Uh, you can have drought, diseases, swarms, locusts. There can be a failure of harvest. But famine is no joke. Uh, when you read the book of Ruth, you see a story of famine. Elimelech takes his family out of Bethlehem, which means house of bread, only there was no bread in Bethlehem. They go up to the land of Moab, and you get the sense that the famine was really bad because the name of the two sons of Elimelech are Malon and Kilion. You know what that means? Sicko and frailty. Famine is a nasty kind of thing. So for the life of Abraham, this famine represents a real trial, a significant obstacle to his faith. Now, you might be thinking to yourself as you read a story like this, why in the world would God allow famine to happen to Abraham in the promised land? And the reason that we're asking a question like that is because we're really asking the question, why in the world does God allow painful moments to happen in my life? You're asking, why, God, did you allow my spouse to walk away from our family? Why did you allow the company to, to downsize and for me to lose my job? Why did you allow my father to get Alzheimer's? And what is most shocking is that these painful moments hit us while we're living in the promised land, which for the Christian represents walking with Christ. I'm in fellowship I'm reading the Bible, I'm praying, I, I'm declaring God to other people, and it's precisely while we're walking with Christ, while we're living in the promised land, that bam, famine hits. Friends, one important point we need to understand about the unconventional life is that God never promised Abraham that there wouldn't be famine in the promised land. He never promises us as a Christian that there won't be trials in this walk of life that we have. God's purpose, his ultimate purpose for your life is not for you to live a pain-free life, a stress-free life from now until the day that you gently die in your sleep in bed. God's purpose for your life is for you to look more like Jesus. 
And one of the many tools in God's tool belt for that happens to be trials. That's why James makes this very unconventional statement. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So what? Let it grow. When trials come, we can ask one of two questions. We can either ask, how can I get out of this? Or, what can I get out of this? And as you look at this story, Abram's asking, how can I get out of this? He starts solving his own problem. We get no sense in the passage that Abram falls on his knees while the famine's striking and that he's crying out to God and asking for direction. No sense that he's waiting patiently on the Lord to show up and to give him some kind of clear direction. No, we almost see this quick narrative of he enters into Canaan, he sees a problem, he forms a plan, and then he's out of there heading off to Egypt. There's an important observation We engineer greater messes for ourselves when we reason, I can solve my own problem. You've done it. I've done it. At one moment, we're allowing God to steer the ship, and it's all rosy. It's good. And then a storm comes. And almost subconsciously, I find myself in the captain's chair of the ship. Let me just say this. It's really easy to let God steer the ship when it's blue skies and clear sailing. So you can almost hear Abram's thought process. I know I'm meant to be here, but there's a famine in the land. Famine means no food. No food means starvation. How can I get out of this? Oh, yeah. Egypt. A place with the Nile River, a place with green grass, a place where everything's going to be perfect. And he might even have believed that he was doing God a favor. God said that he's going to produce an offspring through me. So I need to do this so that God's plan won't fail. While Abram's actions may appear like a simple error of judgment, they're actually a serious blunder of faith. Why? Because when we take matters into our own hands, we're essentially choosing to live like God is not in control. That's what we call functional atheism. We're living as if God is not a factor in the equation, that He doesn't exist. That's why he takes faith so seriously. So let me ask you a question. Why is it that you can trust God with the eternal details? Your eternal life, your salvation, covering over your sins, a future resurrection. But you struggle to trust him with the daily details. How do I know that I'm struggling with the daily details? I'm living with stress. I'm living with anxiety. I'm taking over the situation. I mean, do you see the inconsistency there? I believe that God will eternally, securely save me into eternity, but I'm struggling to trust God with my finances. 
I believe that God cared for me so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for my sins, but I'm wondering if he cares for me now because my child is in the hospital. We get those things out of balance, and I don't want to make light of your circumstances, but when compared to the greatness of God and the weight of eternity, those circumstances are small. They don't feel small. They feel exponentially large. So the only way that we are going to make them appear smaller in our window of perception is by taking those circumstances and holding them up next to the God of the universe who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, and good in disposition. But if we don't, well, then we fear, we stress, we get more and more conventional. That's right. Scheming, prognosticating, running through the what-ifs, piling up the sandbags of security, and then saying along the way, yeah, God's a factor. He's going to bless the decision that I made by fear and not by faith. Will he? Hebrews 11.6, without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's why God doesn't want you to run down to Egypt. You see, in the Bible, Egypt represents our human efforts versus divine help. The story is framed by these movements. He goes down to Egypt. He comes back up from Egypt in the story. You see, these movements represent Abram's pilgrimage out of the place of blessing and then back into it. Isaiah 31.3 tells us, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Our escapes to Egypt, whether it would be addiction of some sort, overeating, overspending, some kind of out-of-control habit in our life, or some immersion in a, a busy social life, or, or choosing to have an extramarital affair on our spouse, or seeking after money, status, fame, or thinking that education is the foolproof plan, will never be good enough. Whatever we are clinging to more tightly than God is our Egypt, and God will not share his glory with Egypt. But here's another point. The grass is not greener down south. When we cling to things instead of God, those things tend to control our lives and the pressures mount up. And this is what happens on, in the life of Abram and to his wife Sarai. So look at verses 11 through 13 with me now. The story continues when for the, uh, or when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. <laughs> now let's stop right there. Before we're about to pounce upon Abram and let him really have it, you know, this is definitely not... Uh, the kind of guy that we like right now, you know what I'm saying? Tell your wife or your sister why I oughta. But, but, 
Fear is a healthy or powerful motivator, not a healthy motivator, powerful motivator. It makes us do things that we would never otherwise do. It causes us to resign ourselves to live things that we wouldn't otherwise be willing to live with. It causes us sometimes to do downright goofy things. Benjamin Harrison served as president of the United States from 1889 to 1893. He and his wife Carolyn were the first couple to occupy the White House after it was wired for electricity. Now, President Harrison, he was a pretty rugged kind of guy. I mean, brave. He was a brigadier general in the Civil War. He had stared death down the eyes plenty of times. But I'll tell you, one thing that made he and his wife pretty scared was the light switches at the White House. You see, electricity was such a new and mysterious force that they they were afraid to touch anything associated with it because they might get electrocuted. So what would they do to turn the lights on and off in the White House? They'd ask their servants to do it. And if their servants weren't available, well, and it was bedtime, they slept all night with the lights on. Goofy, isn't it? But so is marrying someone that you know is not good for you because you're afraid you won't meet someone that God has planned for you. So is getting so wrapped up in the money game and so stressed out in the money game that when the Dow drops a thousand points, you sell everything, trying to recoup your losses in any way that you can. So is tossing and turning day and night in your bed and not eating food because you're such a ball of stress and anxiety over that situation that you're dealing with. It's pretty goofy when you think about it. What was Abram's fear? Uh, His wife, Sarai, was a 65-year-old knockout. I mean, if Helen of Troy could launch a thousand ships, well, Sarai could launch a thousand caravans. And there's nothing wrong with having a beautiful wife, I should know. But when there are Egyptians that are willing to kill you to marry her, well, now that's a problem. It's ironic when you think about it. In Canaan, he lives under the shelter, the care, the provision of God. And he experiences the threat of problems. He chooses to leave to be rescued by unscrupulous people who will kill a man to marry his wife. I mean, conventional wisdom, pretty reasonable stuff when you think about it. Technically, Abram's lie did not contain or did contain half of the truth. We learn that Sarai later is his half-sister, and I'm not going to get into the West Virginia stuff again. They shared the same father, had different mothers, which, you know, is okay, kind of. By telling the Egyptians he was her brother, Abram's plan was to manipulate and to con the Egyptians. So uh, they they might kill me if I'm the husband, but if I'm the brother, they're going to take time to negotiate with me and and pay a dowry price. And in that, that meantime, I'm going to execute a plan and get out of there. What's the problem with half the truth? A half truth is always a whole lie. Friends, no matter how fearful you feel of your circumstances, how strategic your white lie appears to you, no matter how much you believe that it won't hurt anyone, God will not bless manipulation, deception, 
or usury. He never will. God has called the Christian to wear the belt of truth. We're to walk around girded by the truth. We use the truth in season, when it's friendly. We use the truth when it might present a danger to ourselves. And in the end, the truth is a protection over you. Because lies, well, lies snowball. They spiral out of control. And that's exactly what we see in this story with Abram and Sarai. Before we get there, real quick, let me ask you a question. When was the last time that Abram built an altar and called on God's name? I think it's been a while. You ever notice when you're living the Egyptian lifestyle that your prayer life gets hurt? Just a thought. All right, let's move on in the story. Verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had slept, uh, he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Oh boy. We have just gone from mess to messier to downright filth. The lie has snowballed out of control. Sure, you can dupe a regular Egyptian, but what happens when Pharaoh comes knocking on the door? You say, yes, sir. Yes, you can marry my sister. No, sir, I don't need a dowry. Yes, sir, long live Pharaoh. There's no negotiation. And poor Sarai, she's whisked away, brought into the palace because her husband is a schemer and because the Egyptians just see her as a piece of meat. They objectify her. She is called that woman. Abraham, whatever happened to treasuring your wife is a precious possession? Whatever happened to serving her and loving her as Christ loved the church? Whatever happened to protecting her purity? And here you have, when you read this story, there's a bunch of commentators and they're, they're trying to mitigate this situation and ten reasons why we know that Pharaoh did not have sex with Sarai. But that's not what we read in the story. We don't know what happened in this story. The only thing that we do know in this story is that the palace doors shut. And whatever happened in the palace, well, that stayed in the palace. And while the text remains chillingly silent on Sarai's stay, it's pretty open about uh, Abram's good fortunes. He's getting luxuriously rich. Which tells us that sometimes you can get incredibly successful doing something that's incredibly wrong. Camels, for example. They're like the Ferrari in Abram's time. Something that only the, the opulently rich owned. I wonder if that camel replaced the love in his heart that he had for his wife. 
I wonder if when he was laying in bed and, and, and thinking about his situation and trying to fall off to sleep every time he heard the sheep bleed or the camel grunt, if it didn't just bring her to his mind, I don't think that Abram slept a wink. How do you get out of a situation like this? You run and try to storm Pharaoh's door? Do or die? Do you go to him and say, hey, uh, you know, actually I was lying. I kind of would like to have my wife back and my life back. And yeah, that's how you lose your head. Humanly speaking, there isn't much you can do at all. But thank God that God steps in even when we've made a huge mess of things. Look at verse 17. For the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now I believe that the big question of this entire passage lies in verse 17. Why did God intervene? Why did God get involved? Why did God show up after Abram had took matters into his own hands, lied, sold off his wife? If you answer that question, then you understand the meaning of this passage. And friends, you also understand a significant spiritual principle that we find in the Bible. So why did he do it? The answer is, God had made a promise that through Abram an offspring would come who would bless the nations. The present situation would not allow for God to keep his promise. Sarai could not be locked up in the harem and then God bring about an offspring through the line of Abraham to the seed line of Christ. One thing that I want to make very clear here, God did not plague Pharaoh because Abram was somehow intrinsically better as a person than Pharaoh was. We see all the time in the scriptures that God does not elect people because he's a partial God. He elects them because he is fulfilling his promises. He says this to the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other person that the Lord set his love on you. Now, you might be sitting in your chair today thinking, well, there was something intrinsically good about me that caused me to be led to Christ. No. It was not because, but it was because the Lord loves you. And because he's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. God intervenes in human history because he is a promise-keeping God. That's the point. Self-determined, manipulative, downright careless Abraham sends off his precious wife and with her the promises of God. Yet God shows up because God will not let one of his good promises fail. He is faithful from start to finish. He preserves his people and his promises even when we make a huge mess of things. That's the point of Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 to 20. 
So let's learn a couple of lessons from this story. It's one thing to hear God's word. It's another thing to do God's word. God's plan and purpose and will for you is that you would understand what his word says, believe it in your heart, and then it would find its way into your limbs. And so let's learn some lessons about our times in Egypt. Remember, Egypt represents human effort instead of divine help. So lesson number one. Time spent in Egypt is time wasted. I mean, think about the story. Is, is there anything spiritually productive happening while Abram is in Egypt? Anything spiritually productive. It's all just a big ball of mess, isn't it? Well, I would submit to you this morning that any time that we spend in Egypt is time wasted. I hear believers say things along the lines of, oh, you know, I, I know I'd walked away from the Lord for 10 years or something along those lines, and, but here's all the wonderful things that came about because of that. Well, let me just say this. It wasn't because you did that. It was because God's gracious. God shows up and he involves himself in our life when we're living down in Egypt and he rescues us. He doesn't use Egypt, though, to produce spiritual good. So then let's consider the reverse side of that truth. God uses the promised land to produce spiritual good. You have to be in God's place of blessing in order to grow in your Christian life. That's the second principle. The most significant work of God happens while we're in his place of blessing. For Abram, God's place was Canaan. He was growing like a weed while he's in Canaan. He goes down to Egypt and all the growth stops. For the Christian, growth happens as we abide in Christ. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Time in Egypt wasted. So how do you abide in Christ? Well, you do what you're doing right now. You come, you fellowship with the church, you go home, you open your Bible in a daily habit, you have prayer time with God, you get excited about your faith and, and joy in Jesus, and you share it with other people. And the more we abide in Christ, the more we grow. Lesson three, unbelievers will pay attention to your life. Pharaoh's words in verse 18 serve as a stern rebuke. He says, what is this that you have done to me? And these words, reminiscent of God's words to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.13, what is this you have done? Essentially, God is using Pharaoh as a mouthpiece to rebuke Abraham. How humiliating. I remember when I was in high school, I was a two-faced Christian. I spent part of my time with a righteous group of friends and I behaved like they did. I spent part of my time with an unrighteous group of friends and I behaved like they did. I'll never forget that one of the most stinging criticisms that I've ever received in my life was from a guy at school who didn't go to church, didn't walk with Jesus, didn't know much about Jesus, and he looked me in the eye one day and he said, why do you wear a Jesus fish around your neck and act like everybody else? Ouch. You know, when Abram left Egypt, he didn't have anything to say. There was no words. What can you say? 
what can you say when you're living like an Egyptian, but you're really a Canaanite? Remember, people are watching you. They watch how you respond to crisis. They, they watch to see if you will guard your integrity. Whether you realize it or not, you are being watched by your spouse, by your friends, by your family. You might be the only Bible that someone reads. So what are they seeing? What are they coming to understand about God and through you? Lesson four. Our choices in Egypt can create unintended consequences for the future. All that wealth, those female donkeys, those camels, create future problems for Abram. In the next story, he divides with Lot because they have too much. Later on, he is given Sarai's servant, Hagar, and uh, they sleep together, and he has a child, and Due to this union and conflict and strife, there's conflict in Abraham's life for the rest of his life and then into his children's life and generations and generations. And oh, by the way, it mentions in the text that Hagar is an Egyptian servant. Hmm. Lesson five. Jesus is the only one who can mend our broken lives. When I came to the hospital to see my son, the first thing I did is I went over to inspect the wound and tell him I love him first and then inspect. If you have squeamish ears, close them for just a second. So I looked at his arm and his once straight arm was now a curvy S. He had broken the uh, ulna and the radius and it just looked like a rubber band. I didn't need a medical degree to know that that arm was broken. You just looked and you knew. But my poor, naive little son looked up at me after looking at his arm and he said, Daddy, is it broken? I think it's just bruised. And uh, I looked over at Katie and said, we're just going to have to wait for the doctor to come in and tell us what happened. But he didn't want his arm to be broken because he knew in his little mind that a break would require a lot to fix. He didn't want to go through the pain of fixing it. Some of you this morning, you're not, all of us, we're not just messy, we're broken. Some of you are sitting in your seat this morning. You're spiritually broken. It's evident. It's visible. It doesn't take a seminary degree. I don't need to get out the spiritual x-ray. But like my son, Zach, you're saying to yourself, you keep saying to yourself, well, I'm not that bad. I do some good things and a lot of good things and, and most of the things that I do that are wrong, well, they're just not that big of a deal. Well, whether you're willing to admit it or not, the Bible says you're broken. Your relationship with God is destroyed. He didn't send his only son into the world to save mostly good people who occasionally do wrong things. He sent his son into the world because we're utterly broken because of sin. And we're eternally destined for hell as a consequence of that sin. If Abram is this big of a mess and he's the father of faith, well, friend, you're that big of a mess too. And just like Abram in verse 17, we need God to show up. 
And he did. He came to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who lived the life you couldn't live, who died on the cross. He was both God and man, 100% God, 100% man. So in his own person had the power to fully satisfy God's wrath for sin. Jesus is greater than Abraham. He's greater than your sin. So no matter where you are at, if you haven't trusted Christ, if you're starting to grow in Christ, if you've been in Egypt for a while as a Christian, or even if you're just walking with God in the promised land each and every day, your same problem is always the same problem. We desperately need Jesus. And so this text is saying, trust him, believe in him, follow him. Don't go to Egypt. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Father, as we close this 